church. Get that up there. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Anthony Shostel, and I've been attending here for four and a half years. I'll be reading from Second John. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. The word of the Lord. passage for us this morning. Thanks. For reading that. Just going to talk here. Test, test. Am I good, Tim? Put this down. Use this. Gotcha. Is that better? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's always such a joy to be with you. My name is Jenna Hyron, and I'm your family director here at TCC. Today we are nearing the end of our series. It's called Certainty in Uncertain Times as we walk through the Apostles John's letters. So we've spent the vast majority of our time in 1 John, which reads very much like a sermon. It's rich, it's full of teaching, both in theology and in Christian practices. And today, for one Sunday, we're going to transition into this little postcard written by John to a group of believers in Ephesus that contains a warning for these believers. It's a warning that both affirms John's past teaching and also invites us to recognize the challenge of staying the course of following Jesus while we're in uncertain times. I have the incredible privilege of spending a lot of time with some of the youngest members of our church family, and I love them a lot. So often that love leads me to spending a good portion of my free time delving into research and studies around children and family systems. And so I read a study recently in Time magazine. It was conducted by Stanford University. It was published in 2016. And in this study, it was found that children between the ages of about 7 and 12, who listened simultaneously to many female voices saying nonsense words, 
they could identify their mother's voice with 97% accuracy while hearing that voice for less than one second. That's kind of an incredible statistic, right? Okay, so children listening to nonsense words spoken by unknown female voices will identify their mother's voice in less than one second with 97% accuracy. The research outlined all these different components of the children's brain that light up when they hear their mother's voice and therefore trigger the accurate identification. Wow. Okay, so you guys know what I did with that, right? Yeah. I always have our TCC children help me with my sermon preparation. I mean, come on. They're like this eager workforce. Yeah. So I asked them, can you tell me about your mom? Like, can you tell me everything you know about your sweet mama? So this is what they came up with. Tell me everything you know about your sweet mama. This is what they said. My mom is kind of tall. I think her eyes are green. Actually, wait, they might be brown. My mom usually wears a dress on Sundays, and my mom loves our cat a lot, except when it barfs on the carpet. And it's like, okay. So I'm clearly asking the wrong questions, so I'm going to try again with some different prompts. And so this time, I said, what do you think is really important to your mom? Like, who is she other than your mom? And so here's what I got. I think my mom, this is the same group of kids, I think my mom likes quiet time. Yeah, I think so too. My mom loves cooking. My mom drives really fast. And my personal favorite, my mom really wants a vacation. So here's what I found so interesting. Our kids, they can recognize a guardian's voice in less than a second without actually knowing that much about who that person really is. See, they recognize the voice for what it means to them, not because of a deep knowledge of who that individual is. The mother's voice is a source of needed protection and provision in their lives. See, for children, they need to know who their guardians are. It's actually a matter of survival. So today, as we delve into 2 John, it's this little postcard. It's authored by the one Jesus loved. And we see John pressing into the identity of Jesus. John is telling these believers that to know who Jesus is, to recognize him, it's a matter of survival for the church. So if you have your Bibles with you today, or even an electronic version, um, let's get started here. We're going to look at the first opening verses of 2 John. So in these opening verses, John starts by teaching us that knowing Jesus unites the church. We start in verse 1, and it says the elder. This is referring to the author. In this case, that's the apostle John. This is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus who authored the Gospel of John and, importantly, who spent time with Jesus not only during his life and ministry, but also post-resurrection. The next part of verse 1 is a little more unusual. John addressed the letter to the lady chosen by God and to her children. So it's important for the overall meaning of the text to understand who is being addressed and Bible scholars tend to fall, lean towards one of two ideas, and both of them relatively support one another. So the first is that the lady being identified here is a woman who would have been a leader 
or a representative of a local house church, consisting mostly of her own biological family members. We need to remember that the early church grew predominantly through these churches. This would have been not only the least expensive way of meeting, but more significantly, it would have been the safest way for these early Christians to meet with one another. So it's very possible that this letter is being addressed to a specific singular family led by a woman who would have been a central figure for a local congregation. And remember when I say a local congregation, um, these people met in a living room. So it might be just 10 or 15 people. Scholars who prefer this reading, they'll often refer to the writing in verses 1, verses 4 to 5, and verse 13, which seem to be addressing an individual. Another scholarly approach to this verse would be to conclude that the use of plurals later in the text indicate that John is speaking to a congregational leader, gender unknown, and the children of that congregation are those fellowshipping with the church. The use of the female term here, lady, is therefore metaphoric. It's the bride of Christ terminology. So either of these views are well supported academically and both views hold to the overall themes of what John is communicating. And since both viewpoints agree that this letter appeals to a smaller body of believers, we're going to use that to interpret the text and all refer to that small body as a church. So in these first three opening verses, the next two words we need to pay attention to are the words love and truth. It's so clear that John loves these believers. There's a real unity, a camaraderie, a fellowship that exists between them. And that's emphasized again in John's closing in verse 12 when he tells these believers that he wants to be with them face to face in person and continue the conversation. We also notice the word truth is used four times in these opening verses. So we know that the whole Bible is God's word. It's truth. It's the written truth, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we see John use the word truth so intentionally in repetition, we need to ask ourselves, is there something specific that John is referring to here? And the answer lies in verse 7, where John tells us what truth isn't. Ready? He says that not truth is those who do not acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. There's a double negative there. Sorry about that. So truth is that Jesus came in the flesh. John is referring to something specific when he uses the word truth. The truth that John is referencing is held in this dual identity of Jesus Christ. See, it's this undeniable fact to the Christian faith that Jesus exists equally in two forms. He is fully human, and he is fully God. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claims his deity with the statement, the Father and I are one. Now, that's a really difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around, but Christianity actually starts there. See, it only makes sense if that's true. See, if Jesus was only human, then his death could have no lasting impact on humanity, and it could not have been an atoning death. And if Jesus was only God, then he couldn't have died, and then there would be no sacrifice worthy of redemption. So in fact, 
Jesus' death was real, human, and it was also perfect atonement. It was divine. Jesus prays for his disciples in John's gospel in chapter 17, 19. He says of himself, he says, and I, Jesus, give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. That's the NLT. This is an absolutely pinnacle doctrine of the Christian faith. So in these opening verses, John gives us this emotional greeting to these believers because he knows that they're walking in the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. And therefore, Jesus is our redemptive savior. This is the central characteristic of Jesus that unites Christians all over the world. See, our redemption through Jesus Christ is our greatest connection to one another as Christians. This is the single most unifying truth of the church. When John refers to truth, he's referring to knowing the identity of Jesus both as God and as human. John is saying knowing Jesus unites the truth. Okay, so this is a true statement, but you wouldn't know it because globally we have about 45,000 denominations of the Protestant faith. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking that we have more division than we have unity, I understand. And if you've heard about 50 sermons about loving thy neighbor but you actually carry scars from deep wounds that were caused by Christians. I understand. I don't stand here today naive to the hurt and the division that exists in the church, but I have far greater hope in the truth and reality of God's word. I know that our unity is in our redemption through Jesus Christ. So where are you experiencing Christian unity today? Maybe it starts really small. Do you have a few Christian friends that you're doing life with? Or do you still need that? Maybe right now you feel far more connected to your hobby or your club, maybe your work colleagues. Or let's face it. Maybe the only people that you talk to during the week are under the age of five and they require copious amounts of fish crackers and you've forgotten what it's like to talk to adults. I've seen you at the back, I know, I've been there. It's a real thing. So here's our challenge. Find yourselves one, two, authentic Christian believers. We have a whole room of them one or two, that you could deeply connect with, trust with your inner thoughts, and start to do life together, to experience this unity that Jesus bought for us. So now, we transition into the next three verses of this letter, and John continues to use a great deal of repetition. And in the same way that we saw the word truth being repeated in his greeting, we now see him repeating two more words, to walk 
and to command. So John is about to give us a little crash course in what obedience to God looks like. John is telling us that knowing Jesus requires obedience. We need to remember that he's speaking to Christians that he believes are living this teaching already. And because of that, John is quite succinct. Okay, so for our sake, we're going to return to John's previous writing and the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John to bring clarity to what he's saying here. So starting with me in verse 4, John again references the children. So we're going to read that as John addressing the worshipers who participate in this house church. So whether they're biological family members, we don't know. Some scholars would even extrapolate. They would say that he could be referring to other house churches that have possibly grown from this church. And in either of those readings, we can safely assume that John's meaning it does not change. So here John says that he has great joy because the children are walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Because you see, watching others walk in the truth of Christ, it should give us great joy. We are directly influenced by our Christian brothers and sisters. See, we serve one another. We learn alongside one another, like this. We raise our kids together. That's what's happening upstairs. We are meant to exist as a community. So what a beautiful expression for John to tell this community that their living out of their faith brings a big old smile to his face. The message translation from Eugene Peterson puts it this way, I can't tell you how happy I am. Then we move on to verses 5 and 6, and in these verses we see John repeating the word command. So again, because of the intentionality of the repetition, we need to ask ourselves, what specifically is John referring to here? And that answer lies in John's previous teachings. So in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, we read the words of Jesus saying, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And then John takes that teaching directly from Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 2, John delves into what this new commandment of love is. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's displayed by Christ's journey to the cross. So we notice, so that tells us, that when John uses the word command, lowercase c, I don't know which way you're going to look at me, walking in the truth, he's referring to the commandments, uppercase c, okay? Command, lowercase c, he's referring to the commandments, the uppercase c. Walking in truth as the Father commands means to be adhering obediently to the commandments of God. This is why John says in verse 6b, he says, as you have heard from the beginning. Because these commandments have not changed since they were first inscribed in stone. That takes us all the way back to Exodus 20, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he comes back with the stone tablets, with the Lord's ten commandments. 
And it's really important for us to remember that these commandments haven't gone away, and they carry as much weight today as they did when they were first given. See, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That's the New Living Translation. So when Jesus commands us to love one another, he doesn't abandon these writings of Moses, he completes them. Later in Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus clarifies again when asked, Teacher, what's the most important commandment of the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must what? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In Romans 13, 10, Paul, in further clarity, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. So putting it all together, so John is encouraging this church to continue walking in, living out the commandments, capital C, of God, which are made complete in the love that's been demonstrated by Jesus Christ. These early Christians, they were trailblazing a new way of living and interacting with one another. And John is telling them to keep going He's telling them to deeply love God and deeply love one another. The model that Christians have for love is found in Jesus Christ. And it's not a suggestion. It's a requirement of the law and of our faith. It's a sign both to the world and to one another that we know Jesus. John is saying that knowing Jesus it requires obedience. So all of this begs the question, are you obedient to God's commandments? Specifically, are you loving the way that Jesus demonstrated love? And I think the litmus test that John gives us in this text is the impact of our obedience on one another as a community. These Christians that John is writing to, they fill him with joy. They make him happy. They encourage him. John longs to come and spend more time with them. And I think sometimes, living in a very individualistic society, we can be fooled. Fooled into thinking that our relationship with Jesus is just, it's just between the two of us. But it's not. Our relationship with Jesus deeply impacts the rest of our community. When we're committed to the love of Christ, it elevates the whole community. And in the same way, when we're lagging behind, when we're disobedient to God, it can hurt our whole community. So are there things that you're doing that are impacting your Christian community, even though you might think, Ah, it's just between me and Jesus. 
You might be thinking, well, I'm not that eloquent with words, but a neighbor might be really hoping that you'd offer to pray for them. Or you might be thinking, oh my goodness, my kitchen is just a mess, but somebody else is just hoping that you would extend that invitation for them to tell you their story over a cup of hot coffee. Or you might be thinking, you know what, I'll just read my Bible later. There is going to be a quieter season of my life later. But meanwhile, there's a child somewhere who's waiting to see if you're going to read it at all. See, knowing Jesus, it requires obedience to his commands. And finally, we move into the last four verses of this little letter. And earlier, I referred to this letter as a warning. And that comes from the language that John uses in verse 7 to verse 11. In these verses, John tells us that knowing Jesus protects us from deception. So first, we need to address who is John talking about in verse 7 that he calls the deceivers. Who are these deceivers? John says that there's many of them. And he uses the word antichrist. That's the same word used in his writings in the Gospel of John as well as in Revelation. So John goes into better detail in his first epistle, and so that's what I'll defer to now. In 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, John starts to tell us about these deceivers. He says in verse 2, This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. Do you hear that mirror language there to what we're reading today? But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. See NLT. See, John is saying that truth is actually bound by knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is God and Jesus is man and therefore Jesus is the resurrection, the truth, and the life. These deceivers that John is referring to in verse 7 are people who do not acknowledge that Jesus is the deity come in human form that he claims to be. So there's a lot of people in the world who do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. So we need to pay extra close attention to verse 7 part B that says they have gone out into the world. And then we ask ourselves, okay, so if they went out into the world, then where were they to start with? And that's really important. They were in the church. So if we put that together now. So these deceivers are people who know the true doctrine of Jesus' identity, but they've chosen to leave the church, preach a false testimony of Jesus, and they've probably taken others with them. So likely these people have influence, maybe even gifts of leadership to be able to do that. This is a problem that John addresses in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, and I'm going to use the amplified version, and it just adds clarity. It says, They went out from us, seeming at first to be Christians, but they were not really of us. 
because they were not truly born again and spiritually transformed. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out teaching false doctrine so that it would be clearly shown that none of them are of us. So John, he gives us three warnings in his letter against these deceivers. He warns us against going back in verse 8. He warns us against going ahead in verse 9. And he warns us against going with in verse 10. So verse 8, it says, watch out. that You don't lose what we've worked for. Losing sight of what we know is true about Jesus, who Jesus is, it will cause us to fall back into the ways of the world that we've left behind. This is the call to be on guard, to be diligent, to not be lazy in our faith and slide into patterns of behavior and belief that we abandoned when the truth of Christ entered our minds and our hearts. In verse 9, John warns us to not run ahead. See, we live in a world that's constantly changing and innovating. Last weekend, I learned that I'm in a category of people. Mm -hmm. I'm in a category of people who still use Facebook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last Saturday, I was in my very first ever Be Real. And if you have no idea what that is or why someone would use it, me neither. (laughs) See, we're constantly looking for the best new thing to replace the old thing. But the gospel of Jesus cannot and it will not be replaced, replicated, or reconfigured. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be the foundation of your life the truth that you can stand on, build your life on with perfect confidence. I recently told a mentor, I said, you know, I've, I've only, I confided in her, you know, I've only written a few sermons, but I already feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. And without missing a beat, she said to me, Jenna, that's exactly what you're doing. And you're going to preach exactly the same sermon for the next 20 years. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will not change. It's not going to get added to. It's not going to be made more interesting, you guys, or more complex. Jesus' last words on the cross were these. He said, it is what? It is finished. And those words were spoken by the one who was there when the whole universe was put in place. So John tells us, don't run ahead. And finally, John warns us about who we're going with in verse 10. Verse 10 is not telling us that we should be inhospitable. Verse 10 is about being cautious about who we partner with in ministry. In a time that this letter was written to the early church, most churches, remember, when I say churches, I'm talking about people, okay, not buildings, people conducted worship in their homes. So that means that their couches were their podiums. Their kitchen tables were their fellowship, and that means the spare bedroom they had, that's their offering. 
So in this era, welcoming a Christian teacher into your home often meant welcoming them into your pulpit and actually giving them your offering. You are the host who were supplying their needs as they traveled, providing for their safety, giving accommodations, and therefore were offering a place for them to continue their missionary work of preaching in these home churches. So John is saying, be careful, be watchful. These people, they look and they sound like us at first, but they've abandoned the truth of Jesus and they're spreading false testimony. And if you give them housing and you give them your pulpit, you are participating in that wicked work. And so what's the answer? It's to know the truth of who Jesus is, knowing Jesus will protect us from deception. So what does it mean for us to take these warnings into practice? We need to be mindful of what we let into our homes. The things that we consume in our places of safety, when our guards are put down, those things will shape us. So is there anything that you've allowed in your home that shouldn't be there? Do you inadvertently participate and therefore contribute to something you don't even like? If you have a young person in your home whose struggle with self-image has turned destructive, what needs to leave your home? If the temptation to overspend and overbuy has cost your family more than you would ever admit publicly, what needs to leave your home? And if your commitments are so heavy that actively participating in a community of believers is impossible for you, what needs to leave your home? This, this is the warning that John gives us. John tells us, do not fall behind. Do not run ahead and do not go with those who deceive. Knowing Jesus protects us from deception. So to conclude my message today, friends, the heart of John's letter is to know Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing Jesus will unite the church. Knowing Jesus requires obedience. And knowing Jesus protects us from deception. And so I'd like to draw your attention one last time to some of our young people here at TCC. And this morning I opened with some examples of our little ones trying to answer the question, who's your mom? And they struggled, and it's cute. But now, I'd like you to hear instead some responses that I took from some teenagers here at TCC. So if you're lucky enough to have a teenager sitting beside you today, I'd say you should reach over and just give them a little squeeze. I asked some of these youth, some of these who are here today with permission, the same question that I asked our kids last week, and I asked them to tell me, who is your mom? Who is your dad? So listen. I want you to listen to the difference in their responses from what we heard this morning. Listen. My mom is the hardest working person I know. She's amazing at her job because she wanted it so bad and was willing to work so hard to be the best. She did it all even when the odds were stacked against her. 
My dad loves our family more than anything in the world. He gets up praying for us and goes to bed praying for us. He would do anything for me if I asked him. He loves me more than anything. My mom is a fighter. She's had it really hard her whole life. She's moved around a lot. She's done a lot of crummy jobs, but she's never stopped trying. She never gives up. She's always done the very best with what she has. Friends, that's not a research report. Those are, those are words that are spoken by the youth who we have in this room today. Those are the youth of our TCC family. So what does this tell us? See, over time, our relationships change a lot, don't they? We start with these little people who can identify us. They know their mother's voice. In a, they can recognize it in a crowd in less than one second. They know their guardian's voice as a source of protection, sustenance, and survival. But as they grow from child to teen to young adult, their ability to simply identify their guardian changes because they begin to know that person in such a deeper and a more complex way. Not only can they pick out a voice, but they know the heart and the character of that parent as well. So which way do you know Jesus? Because knowing Jesus as our Redeemer, who exists as both a deity and a man, is really only the beginning. You can be a Christian who knows Jesus as your Savior and nothing else. That is a childlike view of Christ who knows him only for what he has done for us. And my invitation for you today is that there's far more to know of our sweet Jesus as we walk closely with him through the years, through the highs and lows of life, reading and engaging in the depths of scripture, which is God's living word gifted to us. And maybe... Maybe as you've journeyed through life with your own parents, maybe your eyes were opened to the reality of not just the good in their lives, but also the sin and the shame. Sometimes knowing people in this way is hard, and we can put up barriers to others so that we don't have to be confronted with versions of people that scare and confuse and sadden us. But friends, today we are reminded that Jesus is not only a human. I can promise you today that your deep discovery into who Jesus really is will never disappoint you. Jesus is worth pursuing. He's worth knowing. Jesus is worth discovering. So let's be people who chase after the real Jesus, the one who exists as both deity and man, in order that we may have unity in our church, confidence in our obedience, and peace in our homes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are holy and almighty. Thank you for knowing us first. Thank you for pursuing us before we pursue you. Please help us to want to know you more fully. Reveal yourself to us in scripture, in prayer, and in fellowship with one another. 
Help us to be a church that honors the truth of your word. Amen.